0: I don't know how many. I don't even have a number. There's so many men in this church that can fill this pulpit and teach effectively. And uh, to that, I'm so very thankful to God that He has graced us in that way and that He continues to bless us in that way. And um, it doesn't take long. You don't have to get too far away from here to realize just what a blessing that is. And so I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful that... Um, Larry gets time off, I get time off, and we don't skip a beat. We're back in Galatians today, chapter 6. We're actually going to start with the end of 5, from verses 25 through 6-5. That's where we're going to be, so if you want to turn in your Bible there. But first, uh, my family and I went to the beach a couple weeks ago, and I had an epiphany. I realized that it is not hard to go to the beach. But it's very hard to come back. And let me, let me frame that for you. It is hard to get there. Okay, I have three little boys in my house, which means we have a van with a car top carrier... And every piece of equipment and whatever may need, we need, might need while we're at the beach for a week. So fishing rods and tackle boxes and scuba masks and whatever else needs to make it to the beach. So it is hard to get there. But once we get there, it's a very sweet time. The Blackberry gets turned off. The computer gets tucked away. And it's just us. And we don't do much. We walk from the house to the beach, back to the house, back to the beach. That's all we do. We don't go out to eat. We, don't do, we just hang and try to d- disconnect from everything we possibly can. And it's a beautiful thing. But about this happens to me every time. Every time I go, I start thinking, man, they could use a good church down here. This church planting thing, I've been sending guys out other places. I may be called to the beach. (laughs) Dear God. But I did realize something. The beach is only the beach in my heart and mind. Because it's a bit disconnected from reality. It's a great place for restoration. It's a great place for my family and I to reconnect. But it's not reality. It's not reality. And as soon as I brought a church planting venture to that beach, that beach would cease to become be the beach that I know it to be. And I'm afraid that most of us walk through life in the same way. We want to find places of disconnect because then we don't have to deal with the issues of the day. And it woos us away from the church and from our life every week as a mistress calling our name coming home is hard but this is the real epiphany that I had coming home is hard and sweet all at the same time that I am committed to this fellowship and I have to lay my life down daily selflessly to put my desires away to consider others more important than myself. And in doing that, that's the sweetest place on earth. And before I get into the text today, can I just say this? Cause I'm, I'm going to ramp up here in a minute. Okay. This place, this fellowship, this community I believe is the most beautiful place on earth and my family and I have experienced relationships here that I have dreamed of for a lifetime that I believe I was created for and today in our text we're just going to be challenged to do it all the more So let's pray and ask God to meet us. Lord Jesus, you, you're the head. You're everything. And we are your body. And Lord, we ask you this day that you would come to us In the power of your spirit through your word. And that you would transform us. That this day we would live out the gospel of grace. And we would be challenged to love one another as you have loved us. I pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Well, let's read. Galatians five twenty five through six five. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Brothers, if any if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then this reason then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. In Galatians 5, 16 through 24, Paul described both the conflict between the flesh and the spirit and the way of victory through crucifying the flesh. And that was walking in the spirit. In our passage today, He brings us right down to a street level. He takes this obscure thought of what it means to walk in the Spirit, and he says, here it is. You want to know what it means to walk in the Spirit? Let's talk about that. Let's bring it right down to where you live. It's the way it looks in the congregation. This whole passage is structured around the phrase, one another. The idea of let us. It's corporate. It's us. It's the body. And he says that we are not to provoke one another or envy one another. Instead, we are to bear one another's burdens. Paul says that one of the primary evidences of walking in the Spirit... Is our fellowship. It's how we interact relationally. Our love and concern for one another. This is a corporate mandate to the church. And there is no other way to live. You either walk in the spirit as you relate to one another. And therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Or you don't. No shades of grey. No indulgences. No perfect and permissive here. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, it means walking in genuine love and concern for one another. Now, that's the whole thing. And let me remind you that is why we call every member to live in community. In small groups and in community with one another. And if you're not there. If you're not connected to anybody. You're not walking. Not walking in the spirit. You're not connected. You're not loving one another. Those two. Don't work together. So Paul takes us directly in verse 26. How not to treat one another. Okay, that's where he starts. Live by the Spirit, while in the Spirit, let us not become conceited. Verse 26 really illustrates that our conduct to one another and to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. Let me say that again. Our conduct, our behavior, the way we live. We've been trained very well that the way we live is what we really believe. The way that we live, our conduct toward others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. What will hinder you from walking in the Spirit? Pride, self love an absolute empty, vain, and false opinion of yourself. That will keep you from walking in the Spirit. Christ died to set you free for freedom. One of the things He set you free from was you. This is true of all of our experience. We are motivated most often by feelings of either superiority or inferiority. One of the two. If we regard ourselves as superior to other people, we will challenge and we will provoke them so that they realize we truly are superior to them. Let's take a little case study. When was the last time you had an argument? It's not a fight, an argument. A conflict in your home, if you will. With your wife, or maybe, maybe it was with your husband, your sibling, a friend, maybe it was somebody in your small group. What was motivating you? You were right, and you wanted them to know it, right? I mean, if you really get down to the bare, that's where most of the arguments really come from. You're right. And you want the other person to know it. And you're, you're ready to go and prove it. Whatever. Okay? And when that happens, and I only know this because I'm self-diagnosing right now. Okay? I shouldn't do it from the pulpit, but that's what I'm doing. Okay? When I do that, I'm wrapped up in conceit. My view, my opinion, my status of myself becomes more important at that point than the other person and when that happens i cease to walk in the the spirit and my sin when i flesh out like that becomes a bigger issue than whatever caused the conflict in the first place on the other hand if we regard others as superior to us we will envy them and we'll be wrapped up in self-pity and produce in, that produces envy, and then that usually slides into hate and resentment, and that will bust up a small group in a heartbeat. But do you see both sides of this coin? What the, what the bottom line is? Conceit, envy? It's all about me. It's all about me. It's self. And self love is radically different than the love that is produced. By the spirit, first Corinthians thirteen, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast; it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. it is not irritable or resentful. it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, partial will pass away. Love never ends. Nothing hinders you more from walking in the Spirit and loving others than selfish pride. And we all battle it, every one of us it's the very thing that happened in the garden it's pride and it continually trips us up and this is why it's easy to talk about loving one another in big broad terms and we can say you know this is why we do small groups we want to learn to love one another well and we can just kind of broad stroke that thing and say yeah that's what it but man it's hard It makes you want to run to the beach. It's hard. The dirty, messy, hard, sin-riddled human relationships. It's hard. But it's also the sweetest place in the world. When everybody's focused on loving one another. It's an amazing thing. Paul tells us in this passage that true Christ-exalting relationships in the church are governed not by rivalry, but service. We don't rival one another. We don't provoke one another. We don't envy one another. We serve one another. So the correct attitude towards others, obviously is not. You would never teach your child this, that I'm better than you and I'll prove it. Nor you're better than I am and I'll resent you for it. That's not. Yet, Yet some of you have adopted these very deceptive views and Satan is having a field day with you. And what he does when he does that is he isolates you from the body. And I don't know how many times or how many other ways that we need to slice this thing so that we get it. But that is Satan's number one tactic. If he can isolate you and make you a lone ranger, he will kill you. You will die. That's what he wants. He just wants that. He wants you to bow up and say you're the man and you don't need anybody else. Easy pickings. You know that's one side of the coin, but the other side of the coin is just as insidious. If you've bought into the lie that there is some superior elite group of Northway Green Berets (laughs) that you envy, and instead of getting in the fight with them, you sit back and wait for this secret special ops tactical team to come in and take care of business because you're just not to their level yet. You're not a missionary. Not a far-flung family. You're not an elder. Both of these lives, th- these lies leave you and me on the sidelines. Pointing fingers. Spectating. While our brothers and sisters are in a fight for their life and they're left to care for themselves and you're left to bear your own weight. The gospel that Paul has been convincing us of this fact that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone from your sin and the wrath of God and you are bought sealed with the spirit And adopted into his family. His family. Unbelievable. That kind of gospel demands something greater. The gospel demands that we see one another as image bearers of God. Those for whom Christ died. And that it is our joy and privilege to serve one another. So. That's all the negative stuff. How should we? How should we treat one another? How should we do it? The main point of this entire paragraph is stated in verse 2. And listen, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's not a suggestion on how to have a better life. It is a command. Because the reality of life is that it's hard. Sin has made life heavy. And the assumption behind this verse is that all we all have burdens to bear. And none of us can carry them alone. And that God did not intend for us to carry them alone. Paul points directly to the church and says, Be alert. Live in such close proximity to one another that you can observe your brother and sister's life and you can intervene when necessary. Don't stand by and let your brothers and sisters be crushed. Get in there. Carry their weight. One commentator put it this way. The church is not a charitable organization. Like the Red Cross. Or a civic club. Such as the Rotary. Or the Kiwanis. It's rather a family. Of born again brothers and sisters. Supernaturally knit together. By the Holy Spirit. In a common fellowship. For mutual edification. And love. So. Here's the question. Are you bearing burdens? Are you allowing brothers and sisters to bear your burdens? Are you treating this fellowship like a civic club or a family? Because there's a radical difference. A civic club, you just kind of... Come and go as you please, plug in when you want to, out when you want to. No. The church is a family, and family is forever. See, when family is hurting, what do you do? You rush to heal. When the burdens get too heavy in your family, what do you do? You get in there and you lift. You bring a strong shoulder beside. When there is danger, you protect, mamas. Don't tell me that when there's dangers around those little babies, you aren't r- sacrificing yourself. Mama bear syndrome's dangerous, and you get hurt doing something like that. And when the family is attacked, Dad, what do you do? You sit by and watch it be attacked or do you fight? Well, I can promise you this. You better fight. God has put you in that position. You're the defender of your home. You see, when things are family the whole level of self-sacrificing love just gets bumped way up please look around this room for just a second look at the faces no seriously i'm serious don't look at me look around you don't you don't even want to look at each other because you know the conviction's coming This family is deeper, more everlasting than the family you were born into by flesh and blood. This is the people of God, redeemed as a possession of Christ, in order that they would be zealous for good works, and that they would glorify and worship the King. And if you don't see it like that, you're not going to treat one another well. You're not going to bear one another's burdens. When you live this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. This is the law of Christ, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You are also to love one another. How has Christ loved you? He has laid down his life for you. He has sought you out. Is Christ's love because you're worthy? Does Christ love you because you're worthy? I think Paul has just totally destroyed that through our study of Galatians. In um, a couple of weeks, I'll do a recap of the whole book and we'll, we'll be reminded. But... I, I don't think any of us can make that assumption. No, the Jesus type love referred to here that is to characterize a Christian community is not one for the worthy, it is agape love. It is love that stoops to others as Christ stooped to us at the cross. And it is to be the expression and the mark of the church. How will they know that you love me? By the way that you love one another. And loving one another is bearing one another's burdens. It's a stooping. It's a coming alongside of your brother and sister. It's getting dirty. It's walking with them. It's getting alongside them, not for a quick motivational conversation over a cup of coffee, but committing to walk with them day in and day out for years if necessary. You see, burden bearing is not often heroic. It's not a heroic act. You swoop in with your cape and you take care of business and then you swoop back out. It's not like that. Burden bearing is sacrificial. It's less than spectacular most of the time. It's mundane. It's grunt work. It's persevering with your brothers and sisters in the same way that Christ perseveres with your wayward heart. It's a laying down of your life kind of love. It's a John 15 kind of love. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father i've made known to you you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that where whatever you ask the father in my name he will give it to you these things i command you so that you will love one another as christians we are to be conformed into the image of christ And that image is to be manifest in Christ's body, the church. And to disconnect your sanctification and your holiness from the body is to dishonor the one who called you to himself. Holiness is lived out in the context of the whole body. As Ephesians 4 puts it, as each part does its work, the body grows. And what does it grow into? It grows up into the head, which is Christ. We do that together. And the exact opposite is true as well. If you don't do your part, the body does not grow as it ought to. You are integral to the spiritual growth of this congregation. The spiritual life of a Christian void of such love for one another is simply not biblical. You can't make a case for it. It's just not there. So we are responsible not only for our own Christian life and growth, but also for one another's. And we are commanded to bear one another's burdens. So, some of you entered this place today with some questions, some heaviness. What are you supposed to do with your life? Some of you are students. You're just on the front end of preparing for the future. You just saw some folks being sent out to be missionaries, and you're like, yes, that's what I want. I just need to prepare for the next three years to do it. Others in the middle of life are in the middle of life, and the job you worked so hard to get just isn't what it used to be or what you thought it would be. And others of us just want our life to count for something bigger than us. Well, the good news is that Paul has a vocation just for you. And here it is you are to be a burden bearer. You want to find great joy and fulfillment then fulfill the law of Christ by identifying burdens around you, specifically in this congregation, and devote yourself to making them lighter. If your small group is not fixated on this idea, then you're wasting your time and you're not fulfilling the law of Christ. And don't point any finger at anybody else in your small group because it's not happening. It starts with you. You're the man, you're the woman. There are burdens in your group that people are being crushed under. And if you don't love them enough to find out what they are and to come alongside them and help them, you are not fulfilling the law of Christ. Paul, back at the beginning of chapter 6, focuses us in on an example of what burden-bearing might look like. And once again, he says, brothers. He's looking to the congregation and he's saying, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Burden-bearing often is a search and rescue mission. All of us, if you're not aware of it quite yet, all of us are continually running into and tripping up on sin. We carry it around with us. We're trying to put it to death. But it catches us at times. Here Paul is calling us to run to such brothers and sisters. Those who are caught in repeated patterns of sin who seem blind to the bondage that they're in. We are to go to them and we are to restore them the word restore is pretty interesting because it really has to do with the setting of a broken bone. That at one point, these, this person's life was, was true. They're a believer. Their life has been righted by the work of Christ in their life and they've gotten off course. That sin has caught them. and Broken them. And we are to do the work of helping to reset that bone. We can't heal the bone, but we can help get it realigned. And if you're tracking with that kind of imagery, then you know that this isn't going to be a pleasant experience. If you've ever had a bone set, it's not a lot of fun, it's painful, it hurts, it takes a long time to heal. We're not going to go to them and we're not going to beat on them. Tell them how awful they are. We're going to restore them in gentleness. Bringing the gospel that brings healing and life. So who's to do this restoration work? Those who are spiritual. And don't do it. Don't you, don't you dare do it. I know where your mind is going right now. There's the loophole. There it is. I'm not spiritual. (laughs) Don't do it. That is Satan's ploy. Because really, when you say that in this passage, what he's talking about is those who have the spirit within them, who are walking in the spirit. So if you claim to be not spiritual, then you claim not to be in Christ, and you claim to not have the spirit of God living in you, and therefore, you need the gospel. No, this is a all hands on deck. This is a rally the troops, press forward everybody's in the fight together. So those of you that have the spirit of God living in you, you are be about you are supposed to be about restoring people, about living with them and helping them see their sin and restore them and I want to live in closer. Close enough proximity so that Merle can speak into my life when he sees me sin. It's not just about me. I need this as well. My heart is wicked and deceptive and it will fall away. Without brothers and sisters speaking and restoring what is broken. And then he ends verse 1 with a warning. Keep watch over on yourself, lest you be tempted. And you can connect that to verse three, because he comes back to the same idea again, where he says, for if anyone thinks himself something, when he has nothing, he deceives himself. You see, when we begin to live in relationship, we are tempted all the time to be conceited, to start to think we've arrived, that we're something, Pride always comes before destruction, the proverb says, but humility before honor. The cross of Christ brings humility. And the moment you get away from the cross, you will become haughty. Once again, this whole passage is about relationships built on the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit true Christ-exalting relationships that are governed not by rivalry, but by service. And I don't have a better illustration than this. It comes from Mark 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together So that there was no room, not even at the door. And he, being Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'My son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the point. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you May know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The whole point of that passage is that Jesus is the only one who can forgive sins and heal. He's the only one. But the beauty of this story is how did the paralytic get to Jesus? How did he get there? He had four buddies who were in his life who decided that, you know what? Nobody can heal this guy but we believe that Jesus can. And they pick him up and they carry him and they get to the door and there's no way to get in. Now, does that stop four guys on a mission? Absolutely not. But it stops most of us. Most of us would drop our friend right there and go, you know what? Sorry, dude, we'll come back next week. No, not these guys. They huddle up, put their hands around each other and go, okay, guys, we got a problem. Can't get in the door. What do we do? And some genius goes, let's go through the roof. (laughs) Okay, everybody in? Yep, one, two, three, go. And they get on top of the roof and they break a hole, bust a hole in somebody's poor soul's roof. (laughs) Just like guys, not worried about the consequences later. Let's just get it done. They bust a hole through the roof. They drop this guy down right on top of Jesus where he, he can't get away from it. The faith of four buddies. The perseverance of men who would carry you when you cannot walk. Who would bring you to Jesus when you can't get there. That is biblical community. That is the love of brothers and sisters. Who will not allow their family to be crushed. By the burdens that they carry. And the other side of that is. You have to be willing at times to allow your brothers and sisters to carry you where you need to go. My sweet family, if we don't do that, we are wasting our time. Because Jesus said the world will see us and know that we love him. Know that He is the Savior and the Messiah if we live this way. Francis Schaefer said it's it's the last apologetic. That if the church would just love one another well, that people would take notice and see. Read through Acts two tonight. How did they love one another? What did God do in their midst? he added to their number daily those being saved because they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to one another, to breaking of bread, to sharing, to selling their possessions to take care of the needs of others. They demonstrated this even before Paul wrote about it because the Spirit of God was upon them and they walked it out. So today... Where are you in this burden bearing? There's a lot more, but I don't have time. So, me, say this. The table that we share here, the Lord's Supper, has vertical and horizontal dimensions to it, realities to it. First and foremost, we're to come in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. The breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood. That's the vertical part of this.